Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New International Version. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The truth is, most people on this day when Jesus enters Jerusalem had no clue what was going on. And so I think this is such a great story to help us get at the kind of king that Jesus is, because the story is full of ambiguities from beginning to end. There are so many questions that we have. If you read commentaries on Mark chapter 11, you will find hardly two commentators that agree on any aspect of what we're going to talk about today. It's so ambiguous. But what we're going to, the, the track that we're going to take here is a track from certainty to trust. From certainty to trust. There are three ambiguities that anoint the person of Jesus in this story of the, of the Gospel of Mark. He's an ambiguous Lord receiving ambiguous praise and making an ambiguous pronouncement. Those are our three points today, and we're going to start with an ambiguous Lord. Look back at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to. So presumably they said, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And the people let them go. What does Jesus mean when he says the Lord needs it? Some folks believe that Jesus, that the owner of this colt was one of Jesus' disciples. And that what Jesus meant to say was that the Lord, the owner of this colt, has need of it, but don't worry, it'll come back. And so he sent his disciples simply to say that he had permission to take it. Then there are others who say that the Lord is Jesus, that he's basically setting himself as, up as king or Messiah, the ruler of Israel. And just like Solomon or David or anyone in the past who was king could say, I want that, and you had to say, okay, he's saying the Lord needs it. And so, the, under that argument, the people would have known of Jesus' miracles and some of the things he had done around Jerusalem. And so when his disciples, who they all knew, came and said, the Lord needs it, they would have known, oh, Jesus, Jesus needs that. Of course, Jesus can have it. A third group of commentators believe that what's at stake here in Lord is that Jesus is talking about God. And so he, the, his disciples are supposed to go to these people, and they're supposed to say, God needs this. And just like a priest would ask 
for the use of something, or a Levite in ancient Israel. So we're asking for it to be set aside for a time to God's use. What does the Lord need? Jesus doesn't explain himself. And the word Lord in Greek is the word kyrios, and it can mean any one of those things. It can mean just a normal human master. It can mean a king. It can be used as a translation of God. Now, why is the word Lord left ambiguous? And I suspect that Jesus meant it to be unclear, that he sent his disciples into this moment with an ambiguous word, which they had to trust would work. I would imagine that those servants who were there, who heard this, probably thought that, like the commentators say, he was talking about the owner. Like they come and they say, why are you taking that coal? And they say, don't worry, the Lord needs it. The master, the owner, we have permission. And they went, oh, okay. The disciples probably think Lord means Jesus. They probably think Jesus needs it. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He has the right just like David to take it. So they probably thought they were saying Jesus needs it. The people probably heard something entirely different. The owner needs it. And I think Jesus meant God needs it. Proper understanding is not required for proper behavior. Proper understanding is not required for proper behavior. All these people have different views, probably, of what the word Lord refers to, and yet in the end, they all conspire to do exactly what they are supposed to do. An ambiguous Lord. What does he mean by it? And then he receives ambiguous praise. And this might be a little more hidden, especially because of the pageants that we've all seen. But look in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. When they had brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, difficulties in this passage abound as well. Because these quotations that the people are singing come from Psalm 118. And these are pilgrimage festivals. You can find in the Psalms, Psalms that are called Psalms of Ascents. And that means a psalm of going up. And they're typically psalms that were sung as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem. And almost at every festival, certainly at Passover, certainly at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, Psalm 118 is the one that they began to sing when they entered the city. And that's this one. So they didn't sing Hosanna here because Jesus was riding in on a donkey. They sang Hosanna because they did that every year when they came into Jerusalem. They quoted and sang Psalm 118. But there's also this waving of the branches. And the gospel writers seem to not be able to agree on what was actually there. The gospel of John says it was palm fronds. The gospels of Matthew and Luke say it was grasses. And Mark says it was leafy branches. Ambiguities. But what we do have to recognize historically is that that practice too is not unique to this moment. Matter of fact, every year in the fall, when pilgrims would come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, they would cut branches in Jericho and take them up the road to Jerusalem. And they would wave them as they went in and quote the psalm. That happened every fall. So much so that some commentators believe that Mark is actually describing Jesus' entry at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And that what we have from here on in Mark is six months from the fall all the way to Passover in the spring. I don't think Mark is trying to say that. But some say that because this is such a routine thing. Why are they doing it? Do they know Jesus is the king or is this a ritual? Nobody knows. 
But to my reading, I'm guessing that the disciples recognized on this Passover in the spring that something special was happening. Now they're nervous about it because Jesus keeps saying he's going to die. But he also is indicating he's going to make himself known. Remember last week they were just in Jericho and they had just seen the blind man healed there. I'm guessing some of the disciples cut palm fronds to celebrate Jesus' coming. And I'm guessing they started to sing Psalm 118, which is normal for pilgrims. And I'm guessing that probably what happened is that people saw them waving it and laying their coats and the crowd very used to this behavior. And so what starts as a little waving of some palms suddenly becomes a rousing chorus as all these pilgrims start to sing it because it's what they always do. And some say, oh, this is the wrong. We don't usually do this at Passover, but I guess they're doing it. So they go out to the fields and they start cutting down branches and they go, oh, we'll do this too. It's great. And so here we have at least three groups of people here uh, welcoming Jesus in Jerusalem. His disciples, who think they're heralding him as king, probably with the palm fronds and singing Psalm 118 in a very particular way, probably a bunch of onlookers who know the song, and so they all start to sing. And then probably some who lived in the area of Jerusalem, who had witnessed some of Jesus' miracles, who also get caught up in the, in the furor. Maybe Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was leading it because he had just been healed from his blindness, singing about Jesus' power. But the point, again, is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. But what it probably is, very few people probably knew what was at stake, but a whole lot of people were doing it anyway. Now, this is interesting to me because this is praising Jesus, but it's not very intentional. The disciples think he's going to conquer. The crowds think, this is fun. We do this all the time. And not a single intentional bit of worship going on there who fully appreciates what Jesus is doing on that donkey and what he's about to do for them when he enters the city. And yet he's worshipped. So we have an ambiguous Lord receiving ambiguous praise, which is theologically perfect. And nobody knows what they're saying. And then finally, he makes an ambiguous pronouncement. Look at verse 11 there. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Is that how you expected this to end? He's riding on a colt, just like David and Solomon did when they came in to, be, to receive their coronation as kings of Israel. And there's people waving branches and laying coats, singing Hosanna, welcoming the kingdom of David. All this stuff is happening. Did you expect him to just walk into the temple, look around? I guess it's late. Let's go to bed. And they, nobody greets him. Nobody welcomes him. But you see, this again is Jesus. He doesn't care if anybody understands what he means by Lord. He doesn't care if anybody is properly present when they praise his name. And in the end, he's not looking for the praises or the glory or anything else when he gets to that temple. Matter of fact, he's going to go in that temple and make a pronouncement about its evil. But he doesn't even do that on that day. Here he is, the king of all Israel, the Lord of all creation, coming to set humanity free from a sin that has enslaved us since the dawn of human time. And not a single person welcomes him. And he doesn't care. He'll save them anyway. Jesus will be praised by those who don't recognize him and save those who don't believe they need him. And through that love of sinners, Jesus will save those even who reject him.
This is the God we serve. An ambiguous Lord receiving ambiguous praise, making ambiguous pronouncements, recognized by almost no one for who he truly is. We believe that we have to have everything straight, mentally, and that's faith. We also believe we have to have everything straight emotionally, that God is not honored when I give half-hearted praise. God is not honored when I just go through the motion. See, all of that is sin, folks. Well, then what is faith? trust. Becoming a Christian is trusting Jesus. Not understanding Jesus. Not comprehending Jesus. It's trusting Jesus. It means that we trust his culture, his heritage. We live according to those ethics and values, not because inside we've somehow come to agree with them, or because we see their logic or their reason, or because they mesh well with our own inclinations or opinions. We do it because Jesus said we should, and we trust him. We have to trust the life he lived, the way that he dealt with folks, the way he handled the oppression and the rejection and the criticism, the way he handled the poor and the hurting and the sinner, the way he led, the way he encouraged his disciples to lead, the way he forgave, the way he behaved, the way he didn't care about getting the right glory or making sure everybody understood everything perfectly, the way he invited his disciples to go tell other people about him before they even knew who he was, all those sorts of things. This is Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? In the end, to follow Jesus, we have to believe he was the smartest. This is from Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. We have to believe that he was the smartest person ever to have lived. We must trust him. And then we have to trust those in whom he placed his trust and asked to teach and tell his story. And that's why we have a New Testament because we trust the apostles that he selected. I don't trust Paul or Peter or John because I think they were exceptional human beings or super smart or super anointed or anything else. I trust them because Jesus trusted them and I trust Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have faith? It means to trust him. We have been taught that what we put our faith in is a process, not a person. We have been taught that to become Christians, we have to trust a process. But that is not what the scriptures teach. What they teach is that we have to trust a person, Jesus. Do you trust him? Your life will show whether you trust him. Who do we trust? It's okay to be wrong. Don't hold to your doctrines and your dogmas. We're all idiots, folks, all of us. Our doctrines and our dogmas are driven by our own needs and desires all the time. But the beauty of what Jesus gave us and God gave us is not a set of precepts to be believed, but stories to constantly be rehearsed, told by those authorized by God to tell us what we need to know. Do you trust him? That's faith.
We're not saved by a process, by a procedure, by dogma, by doctrine. We're saved by Jesus. And to be a Christian means to trust him. That's what it all comes down to, folks. Do we trust him? Do we read our Bibles because we trust that being born Jewish and being raised in the Jewish culture was good enough for Jesus? It's going to be good enough for us. Do we trust the people that he entrusted himself to? Do we trust the life that he lived? That it is the way to life? Do we trust him? That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to have faith. And so I hope you'll hear these words differently from the gospel, uh, from the epistle to the Romans when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We don't come to a concept or a process. We don't come to a, a formula that needs to be properly figured out. We don't come to a, a, a bunch of mental certainties that we must grip and hold on to for life. We come to a person. Our faith rises or falls with Jesus. Do you trust him?